Thank you for your kind invitation to join me in this holy week. Pardon? Oh, thank you. (laughs) Just a few short days ago, we recognized what is known to many of us as Palm Sunday. There was once a little girl who had missed the Palm Sunday service at her church as she had had a sore throat and needed to stay home. Well, when her big sister arrived home with some palm branches and explained that they were waved to welcome Jesus, the younger sister said, Aw, that's not fair. The one day I miss and Jesus shows up. (laughs) Right? This little girl is like the multitudes that had been in Jerusalem that day that Jesus rode into town on a donkey. The Messiah was there, but they missed it. They were looking for someone different. They thought they knew what a Messiah should look like. And when reality was different, they took the Messiah and crucified him. Well, last night at our Tenebrae service, we call it um, uh, Maundy Thursday, we remembered the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Remember his agonizing hours of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember about his arrest, about Peter's continual denial that he even knew Jesus. We remember about the unjust trial, the sentencing of Jesus to death, the beatings that he endured, the mockings, the carrying of that burden of his own cross. And now we've come to Friday, the day of Christ's crucifixion. I would think that most of us here, at one time or another, have lost a loved one to death. And don't we fondly think back of our last few moments that we have had with them? Sometimes we treasure the words that were exchanged. Sometimes we have regrets. There might have been anger in them. But the last words from a loved one is so significant. And so this morning, I would like to take a few moments for us to reflect on the last words that Jesus shared before he passed away. And this morning, I want us to consider the final words from the cross. Now, we might think that perhaps uh, Jesus' godness, or that he was God as well, helped him during this time of crucifixion. Somehow, that's why he was able to endure what he did. And I want to talk about this morning the full humanity of Jesus. When Jesus was under the burden of the cross heading up that ugly hill, that was all man. He struggled that as like any other person would. And being crucified was excruciating. It was designed to inflict as much pain and discomfort as possible. And the way Jesus was nailed to the cross required incredible suffering for him to be able to vocalize anything. So the fact that Jesus endured such pain, such pain to speak implies a significance to the words of what he said. And I believe that we would be wise to listen to them. Now when we harmonize the four Gospels, and when I say Gospel, I'm talking about the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we bring those together, we are able to identify seven statements or final words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And when you see this picture here that's coming up, it's an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like for Jesus. His vantage point up on the cross, what was it like for him around 
down on the ground. You'll probably see different people. You'll see the grieving um, Marys and the mother of Jesus. You'll see people mocking him, the soldiers walking around. You'll see people standing back at a distance trying to understand what they were observing. And the first statement that we hear that Jesus said while he was on the cross was this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you believe the first statement that Jesus made while hanging on that cross in that excruciating position was a prayer? He prayed for the soldiers who had brutally beat him, who had spit on him and mocked him, who nailed him to the cross and now were gambling for his garments. Jesus prayed for the religious leaders who connived and manipulated and lied and finally got what they wanted. To them, Jesus was out of their hair. Jesus prayed for the crowd, the mockers, the haters, the grieving, his own loved ones. And Jesus prayed that day for you and for me. You know, Jesus could have prayed this prayer on the cross in silence. It certainly would have been easier for him. But he chose to pray it out loud. He wanted us to hear his prayer And I think Jesus wanted not only to let us know that we are forgiven, he also wanted to teach us what it means to forgive. The second statement that we hear Jesus saying was also of concern for others. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, even when dying, Jesus had a concern for those who were spiritually seeking him out. There always has been and always will be two responses to Jesus, the Messiah. If you remember, there were two thieves hanging on either side of him. One of them mocked Jesus, said, if you really are the Son of God, you can bring yourself down from there. So some will see Jesus as a dying legend, naive and weak, and they'll reject him. However, others will see Jesus as someone who loved them even when they were lost. And Jesus did all he could, even dying, so that he might live. Now, when Jesus was having this conversation with the thief on the cross, I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, so my friend, before I can offer you salvation, I must ask you, are you aware that you're a sinner? Have you accepted me into your heart? Do you know that you need to be baptized? Right? Let me share with you some verses from the Torah before we have this conversation anymore. Right? And I'm not saying that, not know, uh, that knowing the answers to those questions is not important. But please hear me on this. Jesus looked at a man who had just turned to him in that moment. And that was enough. The thief didn't know anything about Christian doctrine or the plan of salvation, but he did have faith the size of a mustard seed. And that was enough for Jesus to say, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I ask you, is this thief someone that you would have allowed into heaven if it had been your choice? You see, we put all kinds of judgments and prerequisites on people before we think that they might be good enough to be heaven-bound. But I pray 
that God will judge me with the same heart and as much mercy as he showed to this questioning thief. Jesus wanted to save people, and he will do anything so that they will be with him. And so I ask you this morning, which response will you have to the man on the cross? Is your heart hardened, or is your heart hungry for a Messiah? Jesus welcomed that questioning thief into paradise. The third statement that Jesus um, uttered from the cross was also out of concern for others. And that statement is, behold your son and behold your mother. Now the kingdom of God is quite revolutionary. In a culture that excluded people, such as women, and did not recognize them, there were four women who stood by Jesus in his darkest hour, and that is recorded in God's word. The kingdom of God transcends what we know, that John the disciple and Mary the mother of Jesus represent the way that family ties are transcended in the church. We are responsible to care for one another. And we also see in this statement the true heart of Jesus who even in his suffering was seeking to look out for others and to care for the needs of his mother. Now from here on, Jesus' statements that are brought to us in the scriptures become more personal. And his fourth statement was this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus is crying out, but he's also worshiping in this time of despair. And this heart's cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually the first verse of a psalm that was on the heart and lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross. If you take a look at Psalm 22, here's the first couple of verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Now as we read through the psalm, Psalm 22, we might be tempted to think that this is a hymn of despair. But in fact, it's not. In fact, this psalm ends with a voice of confidence that God really has not abandoned the psalmist. And so I want to pause here and just talk a little bit about this verse. Because I know there have been times when we have been taught that Jesus is agonizing at this part of his crucifixion because God the Father has turned his face away from Jesus. That Jesus is carrying the sins of the world and so God has, he cannot handle looking at Jesus the Son because of the sin. But I ask this question, how can the Godhead be divided against himself? Christ is on the cross because he is submitting to God the Father's will. And I think this phrase, why have you forsaken me, is showing Jesus again in all of his humanity. He felt abandoned by God. Like the psalmist in Psalm 22, David felt abandoned by God. But it does not mean that this is so. I believe God the Father was full of love toward his Son. And he is full of love towards you and to me. Think about it. How could God look on us with love if we come to him as sinners? 
At what point do we say, okay, I'm clean enough for him to then turn back towards us? Right? You know, I love that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. But I think there's a line in that song that has not helped us theologically. The Father turns his face away. Listen to verse 24 of Psalm 22. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to their cries for help. My friends, I tell you today, God is with us. There will be days when we too feel abandoned by God. I know there are many stories represented here this morning when people have felt like they have been abandoned by God. You have buried loved ones this past year. Not only you, but your spouse or your sister, your brother, may have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You may have been laid off from your job and haven't found another one, and your money has run out. You may have given up your best years to raise your children, and now they've turned their backs on God or on the church, maybe even on you and all that you have taught them. And so you are feeling abandoned. But I want to encourage you that we are not. When we trust in Jesus as Lord, God is with us. And so as the psalmist, we too can choose to trust that God hasn't really forsaken us. God does hear us when we pray, and we can have a confidence in that which we have yet to see. And so as Jesus hung there from those nails, with that rough wood digging into the fresh wounds on his back from the lashes, as his muscles would have quivered from the weakness and the shock and the trauma, his mind was likely dwelling on the rest of these verses in Psalm 22. This psalm claims a hope that death is not the end. Now, should that not give us hope? Should it not give us encouragement? When we take the time to focus on the crucifixion of Jesus, I think it's difficult for us to accept because we relate so well to his humanity. We think, how could anybody have gone through such devastation on the physical body? And the next words of Christ show us this as well. The fifth statement that Jesus said from the cross was this. I thirst. I thirst. Now Jesus was offered a drink of sorts three times. And he had refused the first drink offered because it consisted of a kind of a poison which was meant to help hasten the death or at least numb the pain of that who was on the cross. But Jesus willingly took on all the suffering of sin for you and me. Now, self-denial can be painful, can't it? But it can also be redemptive. Adam Hamilton said, Sometimes Jesus calls us to take a more uncomfortable route, a more dangerous or risky route, so that the glory of God is revealed through our experience. Well, the Bible tells us that after Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was offered one final drink, and this is the last drink that he takes. Now, in asking for this one, he wasn't given any kind of medicinal anesthesia that they tried to give him earlier. He's given the stuff that the soldiers would have kept around to wet their own throats 
It was a cheap, watered-down kind of wine and had a bitter taste, something like drinking balsamic vinegar. So try drinking a cup of that, right? They soaked it into a sponge and, and hooked it onto the end of a reed of hyssop plant and held it up to him. And just like any other man, Jesus drinks. And even in this time of despair, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. In Psalm 69, verse 21, it says, For my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. It's almost like Jesus was pointing back and saying, Look, what I'm doing now was predicted centuries ago. Jesus' plan was set in place long ago. But I think there's more to Jesus' thirst here. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, Jesus is not only expressing the dryness of his parched throat and his mouth, but I think he was talking about the dryness of his soul as well. I thirst. You know what this simple statement shows us? The humanity of Jesus. Well, quickly then, I want us to take a look at the last two statements of Jesus. He comments, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. Now this statement, it is finished, brings us one of the most important doctrines on the belief of the Christian faith, the doctrine of atonement. Atonement talks about the payment for sin. Now this idea that the Lord died as a helpless martyr is nowhere taught in the Bible. Jesus was not a victim here. I remember having a conversation with my son Brock once on whether or not Jesus had free choice. And could he have chosen not to die on the cross? Yes, Jesus could have walked away. But his love for God the Father, he submitted to the will of the Father. And his love for you and for me drove him to be that sacrificial lamb for our sin. And he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, the existence of sin in the world is an undeniable fact, isn't it? The Bible reveals and emphasizes sin's true nature and the penalty of death. And ever since the sin of Adam, the whole human race has groaned under the awful weight and the bitter penalty of sin. And each one of us experienced daily life, we can testify there is something wrong here. There is something wrong with man. Now, God is not to be blamed for the terrible evil in the world. He simply made man a free agent. It is mankind who has abused the privilege. And I'm sure you've heard the question. You've likely asked it yourself. If there is a God of love and mercy, why does he allow so much human suffering? Do not think it is God who has brought about the misery and pain that accompanies sin. In the Bible, Satan is shown to be the cause of evil and its continuance on the earth. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells us the warfare against evil is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spirit hosts of wickedness in the spirit world. 
So when Jesus shouted out, it is finished, we would be remiss if we thought it was simply a statement of being finally done his physical suffering. Right? Jesus paid the penalty of death for our sin. The atonement is made. And you and I can be set free from the bondage of sin and restored in our relationship with God. And Jesus' death showed the relentless grace and the relentless love of God for all people. The cross is the moment when God gives himself through his Son to save us. The moment in which God convicts us of sin when it reveals to us that costliness of grace, when it takes up the sins of the world and shows us what love really looks like so that we too can follow in living lives of sacrificial love. It is finished. I want us to now look at the seventh and final statement that Jesus made right before he died. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, these final words of Jesus are from another psalm, Psalm 31, which tells us that Jesus was likely reciting this psalm silently as he died. If you just go down through to the final verse, it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Now, every word of this prayer in verses 1 through 5 tells us something important. And the first word is this. What did Jesus call um, when he was praying? What did he call God? He says, Father. That was Jesus' favorite title for God. And it spoke of this intimate relationship that has existed for all eternity. His first word from the cross was, Father, forgive them. His last word was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands. Think of the touch of a father's hands. I remember as a young girl sitting by my dad in a church service, focusing probably not so much on what was being said up front, but I was focusing on my dad's hands. They were huge. And I would measure my little hand right beside his long fingers. As I sat there, I would trace the veins on the top of his hand. I would check out the hairs on his knuckles. I would count the freckles. Those hands meant a lot to me. They represented strength and safety and love. Those hands have embraced me and given me approval. They've clapped for me and they've guided me. And these hands that Jesus prayed for are not ordinary hands. They're the Father's hands. These are the hands that created the universe. These are the hands that set everything in motion. Just think of what Jesus has endured at other hands. For 15 hours, Jesus had been in the hands of wicked men. With their hands, they beat him. With their hands, they slapped him. With their hands, they abused him. With their hands, they shoved that crown of thorns right on his head. With their hands, they ripped out his beard. 
With their hands, they smashed him black and blue. With their hands, they whipped his back until it was torn to bits. But that is all behind Jesus now. Wicked hands have done all they can do. And Jesus is now returning to his father's hands. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What wonderful hands they are. The next phrase, I commit. The word means to deposit something valuable into a safe place. It's kind of what you do if you were to take your last will and testament or, I don't know, grandma's special ruby ring, and you put them in a safe deposit box at the bank. You commit them into safekeeping. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit. I give you for safekeeping. Folks, here's the truth. You become what you are committed to. Jesus, at this point, is committing his spirit to God. And it brings me to an interesting point, because Jesus was committed to do the will of the Father. And because of that, it would lead to our salvation. Jesus says in John, John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and the power to receive it back again, just as my Father commanded me to do. See, Jesus bore that cross by his own will, and he died according to his own choice. Yes, this was a crucifixion, but it was not an execution. I want you to hear that again. This was a crucifixion, but it was not an execution. Jesus committed himself to God's plan for our salvation. And then the last words spoken were my spirit. How did Jesus handle his death? Well, he died praying. He died praying to God. In those final moments prior to his death, Jesus spent them in prayer to God. And he taught us that when we too are facing darkness and despair, when we're facing the valley of the shadow of death, when we're facing the unknown, what should we pray? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus also died trusting God. He had endured the cross, but his prayer revealed that his confidence in God the Father had not wavered. What a powerful lesson for us to learn. God is sovereign in control of every aspect of our lives. Our circumstances may change, but our God doesn't. Jesus, or Job said it best when he said, I will continue to trust God even if it kills me. Right? Job chapter 13, verse 15. So Jesus in his last moments prayed to God, he trusted God, and thirdly, he submitted to God. We heard in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he questioned, can we take this away? But never once did he refuse to submit to the will of the Father. I wonder if you and I can decide to submit to live for the Lord and serve him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When this is our daily prayer, we never have to be afraid. Jesus ended his suffering by teaching us how to live each day, not in fear, but in confidence and in hope. Let us pray. God,
We want to thank you for the majesty, for the mystery, for the wonder of the cross. Thank you that it was for me. Thank you that it was for our friends here today. And may our response be to give you trust and submit to your will. So, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Amen. Dying man are truly words for us to live by. Jesus is the victor. Evil did not win. Christ's heart, his mission, his experience and his love for us has never changed. My friends, what love is that? That would go to such lengths for you. Jesus thought you were worth it. Would you receive such love this morning? As we prepare for the Lord's, we, we call it the communion, as we commune with the, the Father and the Spirit, and we observe the breaking of his body and the blood that was shed. Let's reflect together as we sing, and as Pastor Rose leads us to the table this morning, why don't you stand with us and bow your head and think of these words. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing so amazing Jesus Messiah name above all names blessed
from home, I trust that you've been able to find some, some juice and some bread to join us in a time around the Lord's table. The communion supper, which is instituted by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, we just talked about that last night. It's a sacrament which proclaims Christ's life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death. Thankfully for us, we also know about his resurrection and the hope of his coming again. And it shows forth the Lord's death until his return. And that's why we continue to remember uh, communion for the, um, every regularly time that we come together as God's people. The supper is a means of grace to which Christ is present by the Spirit. And so we receive it in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Jesus Christ. We do so in unity with the church. We confess our faith that Christ has died and he will come again. And so we pray, Holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. And so we live in the hope of his coming again. When Jesus sat with the disciples around that table, it was something that they had done many, many times before. And Jesus took ordinary, regular things. He took a loaf of bread and he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Would you do this in remembrance of me? Let us take and eat and be thankful. And likewise, when the supper was over, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it out to his disciples and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you do this in remembrance of me? Let us drink together and be thankful. And so, Father, as we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts? Would you make them by the power of your spirit to be for us a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rose, for that wonderful message and that reminder to us of the uh, last words of Jesus on the cross. I want to just, uh, as a benediction, I just want to read to you from a passage of Scripture that the Apostle Peter wrote. He said, To this 
you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he uttered no threats. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And as Rose was speaking and talking about Jesus' last words, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It reminded me of this passage. He entrusted himself to him. When he suffered, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He committed himself into his Father's hands. And that's what we must do. We must bear the cross and carry it daily and without shame. Our boast is not in ourselves, but it is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the cross of Christ by which we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. And so this week, I just want to encourage you to bear your cross proudly. And let's remember, when we suffer and if we're threatened and if we feel persecuted or forgotten or forsaken, we are not alone and we can entrust ourselves into his hands. God bless you all this week. Have a wonderful Easter weekend. Hopefully we'll see you on Easter Sunday. Amen.